now it's time for Nostalgia Town, where we speak with well-known older Australians about the journey they took that makes them the person they are today. Hello, my name is Patricia Amphlett, and here is... G'day, Lex. It's lovely to be here. We're part the big part of Baby Boomer's Guide to Life in the 21st Century, and today, taking us to Nostalgia Town is a wonderful human being. His name is Robert Tickner. He grew up in Foster on the north coast of New South Wales and came to Sydney to study law. By the time he was 25, he'd been elected as a councillor, or alderman as they used to call them then, of the Sydney City Council before he was elected as a federal member of parliament for Hughes in 1984, aged 32. Robert became Australia's longest-serving Minister for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Affairs and worked in that role in the aftermath of the Mabo decision and the implementation of the Native Title Act. He went on to become the CEO of Australian Red Cross and then acted in the role of the Under-Secretary-General of the International Red Cross and Red Crescent Federation, and he now chairs the Justice Reform Initiative, and he's the co-chair of the Every Age Counts campaign, amongst lots of other things and people. Robert, the author of two books, the first is titled Taking a Stand About His Work as the Federal Minister for Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander Affairs, and the second is called Ten Doors Down, and I know that book very well, and I can recommend it to everybody. It's a beautiful book, Robert. Thank you. Ten Doors Down, it tells the intimate story of how Robert as an adopted person, met his birth family when he was the federal member for Aboriginal Affairs and it's now available as an audio book, which I know our listeners would really appreciate. Welcome, Robert. Thank you, Patricia, and hello, Lex. We know you grew up on Foster, which would have been the envy of uh, people my brother's age who wanted to go up there and surf every day of their lives if they could. Did you go surfing? Oh, absolutely. And, um, you know, I wasn't uh, a blonde, stompy, wompy surfer. I, <laughs> I perhaps wished I was at some stage, but uh, I had black hair, but the beach was my life. And oh, uh, I yeah. lived only a couple of blocks from a wonderful surfing beach called Pebbly Beach where I used to surf mm. over the top of these uh, oyster-encrusted rocks. And I've still got some scars as a result of that, but Growing up in a little coastal town was just such a privilege because I Mm. either rode my bike or walked everywhere, knew everyone, and the town Mm. probably had something like about 1,500 people when I was a little boy. It grew as I got older, but it was always a a small town and uh, it really shaped the kind of person I am. Indeed. Lex, I know he's anxious to ask you some questions about your cultural experiences. Well, television came to foster probably, you know, in the late 50s, as I recall, but reception was absolutely terrible. So uh, by the time we started to get good TV reception, it was probably um, you know, 10 or 11, I think, as best I recall. Mm. Um, but I always had an interest in reading, um, but my mum and dad weren't particularly musical in the, in the sense that there wasn't a lot of music in the house, um, they always listened to the radio and the news and I developed a fairly avid interest in current affairs. My dad was in small business. He started the 
Sunliner fiberglass caravan manufacturing business that mm-hmm. produced those rounded fiberglass caravans that mm-hmm. still exist in considerable numbers today. Um, and my mum was very much supportive of my dad's work and my dad also ran a motor business in Taree as well, selling Volkswagen. So um, it was a small business family, I guess, and my dad was a card-carrying member of the National Party um, and I ended up, of course, um, a member of the Australian Labor Party. So <laughs> we used to have fairly robust political discussions. How healthy. <laughs> <laughs> Were you allowed to play in those caravans or...? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, oh. I played all around that factory, but, oh. you know, I, I can't tell you, you know, what it was like. I mean, I lived five doors away from my primary school. On the other side of the house was the local scout hall, uh, only three doors yeah. down. I learned music, although I'm not Catholic, I learned music at the convent, which was directly opposite that. Mm. Then I went on to high school, and the high school was about three blocks away um, and, you know, it was just such a wonderful environment. Mm. And I used to, you know, in the days when I first started to surf, they were long surfboards and I used to carry my board on my bike, um, you know, through the streets (laughs) of the town um, down to uh, the beach at Foster Beach and out to One Mile. And they're so much lighter now, aren't they, the surfboards? Oh, absolutely. Unfortunately, I've still got a lot of um, sun damage from those days, but, uh, you Mm. know, that's a price I guess I'd pay again for what I went, (laughs) for the joy I had from surfing. Yes, we didn't know in those days. No, no slip, slop, slap back then. Where did the interest in politics come from? You know, Lex, I really don't know for sure. My dad was certainly interested in politics, but he was very conservative and, you know, when I um, was growing up, um, you know, he didn't really talk about it a lot. But this is a question I've thought about a lot. And ultimately, I've concluded that, you know, there was something in my genetic makeup, in addition to my upbringing, that really gives me this very profound driving sense of engagement in public affairs, in people, in issues of social justice. It's just been with me since I was a kid, even growing up in a fairly conservative household. And uh, as much as I, you know, might ever want to shake it off, and I don't, but if I, I did, I, I can't. It's just part of my being. I, I am what I am. As someone who knows you a little bit better than probably most people do, I, I think that your sense of social justice, what's fair, what's unfair, what's right, what's wrong, is so very strong in you. And, of course, you can't shake that, nor would we want you to shake that. So we're glad that you're like that. <laughs> um, do you value your social connections these days are probably quite different from, you know, the young bloke growing up in Foster. What sort of people do you mix with these days? Well, to answer that, I think I need to make a bridge from growing up to yeah. what I've become. And that bridge really happened when I moved from being an only child in my adopted family in Foster and I moved to Sydney. And within a couple of years, I was in a shared household in Woolloomooloo. And that absolutely transformed my life. You know, uh, the music in the house was everything from, you know, that music of that era, Bob Dylan, Elton John, 
you know, the, the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, uh, Carol King, John Denver, all those people, Cat mm, Stevens. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, the house was just powerfully alive with music. And I also got introduced to classical music because there was a wonderful fellow who moved into the house as well called Ulrich Burstein, who tragically died on the day of the Newcastle earthquake. But he was uh, an international conductor, um, believe it or not, but he'd been very successful in Europe and I think he originally grew up in New Zealand. But he introduced classical music, music to my life as well. But the point of my story really is that it was living in that shared household um, that liberated me in lots of ways in the sense that, you know, I learned how to engage with people, um, learn the give and take of living in a shared household that you learn when you have a sibling. And a lot of those friends from that era are still my friends today. Mm. But I've always been a very um, out outward-looking person, a very gregarious person. I was always taught, you know, to be polite and courteous when I was a young kid, as many, many of us are. But that's opened up a lot of doors to me because I talk to everybody. So when you ask about mm -hmm. my current engagement, I think I'm really in contact with my community. Um, the books I've written, I actually wrote in coffee shops and different places around mm -hmm. uh, Balmain. And I'm also uh, engaged a little bit in the community outside Balmain where I live at a place called Patonga at the mouth of the Hawkesbury because mm -hmm. when my birth mother eventually passed away in 2012, I later on inherited a little half share of a house in Marylands from my stepdad and with that I bought the house at Patonga. So I spend a lot of time out there in Brisk Bay, uh, out towards Lion Island, paddling the kayak up the Patonga Creek and engaged in that community as well. And I do a lot of writing, a lot of work uh, up there as well. So I'm very privileged. You um, certainly are. In being pretty engaged with two separate communities and uh, strong bonds with my both my remaining birth family um, uh, as well as my original adopted family as well. So, you know, that rich circle of friends and I have a son, Jack, who's a music therapist. I see him a lot, daughter Jade, who lives up in Millthorpe on a farm and they're also a huge presence in my life uh, as well. Robert, I'd like to turn to your, your time as Minister for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Affairs and I... I I want to be careful how I phrase this because I don't want to denigrate anyone who held that position before or since. But And it was a tumultuous time in Aboriginal affairs. But you seem to genuinely have a, a great passion for it that, that I didn't really detect in other ministers. And it, was, it felt to me the first time that, that Indigenous people were getting a fair shake in Parliament. Where did that interest come from? Well, Lex, again, it's back to that the drive I have, I think. Uh, you know, I always saw around me uh, people in the Aboriginal community and foster in my classes. Maybe many of them became my friends. But I knew, um, you know, from a very early age, things were not right. And strangely enough, I had a look back at my school textbook in 1967 
when I did the school certificate, and it literally, and these words are offensive, I, I warn listeners, but my school official state textbook in 1967 described Aboriginal people as part of a, quote, backward race <gasps> prepared mm. to lie, cheat and steal. Oh, my God. Wow. shocking words, but that, that's what my generation was educated to, uh, you know, to believe. Mm. And, of mm. course, it was offensive, untrue, uh, absurd and, uh, you know, a, a cause of the creation mm. of very racist stereotypes. And were you aware of that at the time? Uh, no. I wasn't. I wasn't. I'm shamefully, I only really saw the, this awful content in this book when I went back and looked at it later. I mean, maybe we were just diverted away from that section by a more, you know, enlightened teacher, but it was absolutely there and, mm. uh, you know, part of what people were expected to, to be to be taught. And mm. I remember the prevailing attitudes, um, you know, were were just shocking. So I, when I came to Sydney, um, you know, I started to engage with these issues. I volunteered after I finished my law degree in the first months working at the Aboriginal Legal Service out at Redfern with the wonderful Aboriginal man, Gary Williams, who lives up in Dambaka Heads now. And um, then after teaching law for a little bit, I went to work full-time for the Aboriginal Legal Service, and that's where I was working when I went to Parliament. So. Um, I always, um, you know, believe that if we were going to get change in this area, that we had to not only fight for what was just, um, fight for the wrongs of the past to be addressed, um, and to, you know, deliver equitable outcomes and social justice for Aboriginal people. But I was also very aware that we needed to educate the non-Indigenous community about Aboriginal history, culture, dispossession, the, the true history of our country. Mm. And it was those ideas that underpinned much of the reconciliation uh, process. But, of course, they also drove the you know, commitment to launch the Stolen Generations Inquiry with the then Attorney General Michael Abash to fight for a just outcome from the, in the aftermath of the Mabo decision by the creation of the Native Title Act in the government of Paul mm -hmm. Keating, um, to establish the National Land Acquisition Fund, for example. Um, so, yes, they, they were momentous times, um, but I always said, and, you know, I say this without any affectation or pretense, um, I always believed that next to being Prime Minister, that being Minister for Aboriginal Affairs was the most wonderful gift that any federal member of parliament could have. And, you know, I, I think that, um, you know, it's, it was an enormous privilege mm. and I, I sought not to waste a minute of the time in the job. Oh, that's so lovely to hear, Robert. I know Lex's life, our producer, Jeff's life, my life has, our lives have been enriched by the friendships we have with Indigenous people. And, and to meet elders, to meet young people, it's just... I, I, we feel privileged too to know those people. Are you excited like I am when I turn on a current affairs show and I see so often maybe a beautiful young Aboriginal woman who's uh, out there and speaking about her stories? She's reminding us of all the beautiful storytelling that has gone on, that continues, 
and her people and his people too. I, I must say I see more um, active young Aboriginal women. It's terrific. Would you agree? Oh, absolutely. And I think to give credit where credit is due, the work of the ABC in producing the drum, um, you know, gives tremendous uh, opportunities for many of those young Aboriginal mm. women and, and men and, and others of, you know, different age groups as well. But um, look, absolutely, and and I'm I'm profoundly optimistic uh, of what can be achieved. But mm. you know, we really do have to um, close that gap. You know, it is just untenable mm. that we have such a disparity in life outcomes, mm. in education, employment, in housing. Um, you know, all the social determinants that determine people's lifespan and quality of life. We have to close that gap. Mm. And the voice to Parliament is important, and I support it. Uh, it's a very modest proposal, but we also mustn't forget the social justice dimension of, of righting, you know, the wrongs, and you know, making sure that a young Aboriginal kid who's born, for example, in a remote community in the Northern Territory, gets, um, you know, real life opportunities that uh, other kids around the country mm. also get, and we're not there yet. Not by a long shot. I agree. Indeed. Robert, the other area that, that fascinates me is is that, which in your case has proven to be a dynamic tension between an adopted family and a birth family, what what were some of the emotions that you went through in reconciling those two families? Well, Lex, the book I've written, um, Ten Doors Down, deals with these issues in great detail. But in a nutshell, my story is that I grew up with the most wonderful mum and dad Gwen and Bert Tickner, who were in every sense my mum and dad. I always knew I was adopted. Um, I was the only child in the family. Um, and I didn't even want to search for my origins, even when the law first changed in the early 1990s. It was really only when my son Jack was born and I looked down to this little boy um, and saw the, the first person that I was biologically connected to or genetically connected to on the planet. And I suddenly thought, oh, there's something else here, you know. <laughs> and uh, so within a matter of a month or so, I lifted the contact veto and then went through this process of meeting my birth mother. And why the book is called Ten Doors Down is because the most extraordinary coincidence was that when I met her, and she lived at number uh, 38 Lansdowne Street, Marylands in Western Sydney, and literally 10 doors away from that was the only house that I really knew in Sydney growing up from a small baby through to when I was about 12 or 13 um, because that's where the house where my um, adopted mother was born and where I would go back to visit my grandmother. Oh, wow. So in a city of three plus million people or four million people, um, you know, this is the, this is the amazing coincidence. But the real part of the story that you ask about is, um, how I coped in the meeting. And for me, it was easy because I'd had such a, you know, beautiful life, but my birth mother had never been able to have any other children because of the pain of the adoption. And I'm not kidding you could not have any other children. She could not face the prospect of having another child. So she suffered her entire life until oh. I met her in my early 40s and then 
My son Jack came into her life. Uh, she got the little baby that she never had with me. And, you know, we then, you know, bonded and, you know, I had to do, and I don't say this in any sense of martyrdom, but a privilege that I had to work with her to reassure her that I was going to stay with her for the rest of her life, which I duly did. You know, I think she was worried that I would leave her life in some way. But, you know, she just had this process of coming to terms with it all and this joyous outcome of connecting with me and, and my family. And then after, you know, that original meeting with her, a year and a half later I met my um, birth father and two brothers and two sisters. And, um, you know, <laughs> that, that was um, just another dimension because... Mm. I had thought that my adopted parents were the dominant influences on my life until I met my birth mother and my birth father. And my birth father had some qualities that I would not want to speak about myself, but they are qualities that are the essence of me. And when I met him, I found those qualities in him. And it was a profound experience and I was with him mm. when he died last year at the age of 93 and I yeah. had uh, pretty much, um, you know, 20, well, over 20 uh, years with him um, during that time and my stepmother's still alive and, you know, it's been a, a real family reunion. Absolutely mm-hmm. beautiful. It is a truly beautiful, wonderful book. I've read it and I can recommend that everybody read it. It, it, it it's just it's a joy to read Thank even you. though you really do need the box of tissues handy <laughs> robert but it, it, yeah. it's um it's a magnificent book 10 Thank doors you. Down. i'll tell you a funny story patricia i was mm-hmm. writing the book because i'm you know i'm a very passionate person i love people and i hate to see people hurt and when i'm I was in the cafes writing this book at various times and proofreading it. <laughs> I'd be sitting there, even after I'd done that so many times, <laughs> and I'd just start to shed some tears <laughs> because it was, I'd saw yeah. and then I'd go down. And, <laughs> but yes, it is a, it's yeah. quite a story. It's a it's, good it's one. It's a profoundly, a profound story mm. of love and of family. And in the best sense, it's an individual story that speaks to so many people. That's what I like about it. Mm, that's nice. Thank you. Robert, what do you do for fun these days? Well, I'm deeply involved, pretty much full-time, with this Justice Reform Initiative, and this is a new organisation. We have patrons in form of uh, patrons in chief, so William Dean and Dame Quentin Bryce, but we also have um, people from every state and territory on both sides of politics and senior members of the past members of the judiciary who've all come together to send this message to Australia and to conduct an education and ongoing campaign to shift Australia away from this absolute over-reliance on building more and more prisons. Um, we now have an incarceration rate which is higher than all the countries of Western Europe and Canada. Uh, Aboriginal people are being hit the most, but this is an even wider problem than that. Instead, what we're arguing is that we should invest in evidence-based policy 
in practical proven initiatives which will turn people's lives around and address the underlying issues that so often give rise to conduct the contact with the criminal justice system. So we say, you know, let's deal with those mental health issues, the substance abuse issues. You know, let's tackle jobs for people uh, coming out of prison. You know, let's address investment in communities and, um, you know, do more to, um, to limit family breakdown and, and the way in which some children, unfortunately, through no fault of their own, get caught up in the criminal justice mm. system. We will look back on the way that we currently jail kids as young as 10 as some Dickensian uh, relic of some former century. And in 20 years' time, we will not believe that as a society we were so primitive and uncaring in mm. our response to some of the most marginalised children in the entire country. So we've got good funding from the Paul Ramsey Foundation. We're employing some people around the country, a growing volunteer uh, army of people getting behind this cause, and we intend to get a shift in policy from both sides of politics. Mm. Um, instead of building prisons, well, there's always there's going to be a role for prisons for some people, I guess, but the great majority of people who are going into prison uh, really need alternatives um, which are going to ultimately make our communities safer and give a better deal for victims mm. of crime. But we have to break that cycle of reoffending because, you know, 70% of people in prisons in New South Wales, for example, have been there before. Mm. 70%. That's absurd. Robert, what's the name of this organisation? It's called the Justice Reform Initiative and people can either just Google that or mm. Google the words jailing with a J. Jailing is failing. And wow. you'll get the website and a lot of information and mm. uh, show you how it will show you how to get involved. But mm. apart from that, I um I do a lot of kayaking, a lot of walking. Um I you know do my best to keep engaged with current affairs. Um and I suppose most of all um, get the greatest pleasure from the connections I have with, with friends, family and the community because that's what we all need. You know, that right. sense of connectedness is just critical to our, our well-being and I think it's, you know, it's very important that people realise that a lot of the ageist stereotypes and prejudices that exist um, really have no basis in fact and just because you're entering your 70s, as I am, um, you know, doesn't mean that you're, you know, not able to engage as you did when you were mm. 69 or 59. <laughs> you know, it's got to be right. a matter of choice. And, um, you know, I choose to be, you know, going down the road of active engagement and participation, as well as having a lot of fun at the same time. Inspirational. Inspirational. It works. Well, it's what I believe. It's, it's, you know, it is what it is. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, it's very great. moving, very wonderful. And just by the way, one of our little mantras on Baby Boomer's Guide to Life in the 21st Century is get connected and stay connected. Absolutely. So you're living that and yeah, that's a yeah. great inspiration. Thank you so much. Well, thank you both. Well, thank, thank you. you for giving <laughs> us some of your time today. A pleasure. Thanks, Robert. 